Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast. Kingdom Come. Uh, this series is, is brought to us out of the inspiration of the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come. That's, that's something Jesus instructed us to pray. And the thing about kings and kingdoms is it always makes me think about um, medieval times. Has anyone here ever been to medieval times? Like the, the restaurant slash dinner theater with prancing horses and falcons and princes and princesses and no silverware. No silverware. Like, come on. Like, you got Pepsi, but you can't have silverware. Anyway, my, my wife, when we were dating in high school, she loved medieval times. Loved it. And therefore, I loved medieval times because I loved her and I would endure watching horses prance for 45 minutes and people smashing each other with sticks. It was a blast. Of course I loved it. Now that we're married, I don't love it so much. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't go to, to medieval times so much anymore. But, but she just loves like the, the like, romanticized version of kings and kingdoms. And that's what the Renaissance Fair is all about. I was at the Renaissance Fair a couple weekends ago with her, and it was packed with people just tripping over each other while like actors like walked around pretending they were from the medieval times and there was a queen in some story and people jousting it was crazy but when we think of think of kingdoms what are we thinking of what do you when you hear kingdom come what do you think of and i got i got kind of lost on that train of thought this week originally today's sermon was supposed to be just me talking about the lord's prayer because the Lord's Prayer, it's, it's the most famous prayer in all of Scripture. It should probably be called the Disciples' Prayer because it's, it's not what Jesus prayed. It's what Jesus told his disciples to pray. Um, Jesus had his own prayers, and, but this is our prayer, and, and he wants us to pray it. So I was going to line by line go through the Lord's Prayer, talk about the importance of prayer, encourage you to come to our prayer meeting tonight. It was all going to be about prayer. But I got hung up on five words. May your kingdom come soon, because that's how the New Living Translation translates it. May your kingdom come soon. And I went, okay, if, if Jesus wants me to pray for his kingdom to come soon, what on earth does that mean? And I want to start out today reading the Lord's Prayer together, uh, reading it out, praying it, setting our hearts on something that he wanted us to pray, because that's what this series is all about. It's about this prayer. So uh, if we're going to bring up Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And I want to encourage you before we start reading it together, you probably have it memorized. You probably do. But you probably have it memorized in the King James Version. And we're going to have a different version on the screen. So try to read what you see, not say what you know. It's, it's tougher than you think. You ready? Uh, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And do not let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. This prayer, we, we're all very familiar with it. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school, uh, well, no, I was, in, I was in middle school, I was the wrestler of the week 
in our midgets wrestling program as a seventh and eighth grader, which meant I got to run out with the high school varsity wrestlers. And this was a big deal. Like if you've ever been to a high school varsity wrestling match, you know what they do? Like it, the home team's about to run out. They turn off all the lights in the gym. Then a spotlight comes on and then some crazy loud like hard rock music starts playing and then the team just runs out and they run in a circle and the fans start cheering and then you just do warm-ups on the mat and then after, after the warm-ups are done, everybody like circles up in a huddle in the center of the mat and then I, so I'm like seventh or eighth grade and I circle up with the varsity wrestlers. Here I am. None of them know me by name. I've looked up to these kids my whole life. There they are, the varsity team. And you know what happened in that little huddle? They started praying the Lord's Prayer. And here I am, Christian my whole life, looking up to these guys I've looked up to for their skill. A couple state uh, finalist wrestlers are there, and, and they're praying the Lord's Prayer. How awesome is this? And then they said amen, and they all slapped the mat together, and then a sea of profanity that I cannot describe erupted in that little huddle of varsity wrestlers. It's like they started speaking in tongues of unknown languages, but those languages was just curse words, and I didn't know what was going on. So it went from this moment that my heroes are praying the Lord's Prayer to, oh, okay, that's okay. It was just empty tradition that they didn't mean. And I think a lot of time, the, the Lord's Prayer is, is something that is simply prayed without consideration. So again, today my goal originally was to go through it line by line and carefully consider what each line meant. But in that process, I got hung up on, may your kingdom come soon. May your kingdom come soon. And as I got hung up on that concept, I was absolutely stuck. And I started going all over scripture to look at what God's kingdom is, what, what the kingdom of heaven is, what the kingdom of God is, looking at the Old Testament, looking at the New Testament, looking at the book of Revelation, what does it mean throughout scripture, these concepts of the kingdom, what does it mean? And he says for his disciples, he asks them to pray that the kingdom would come soon, okay? And so I was like, okay, so it's something that must be coming. So I started in looking in Revelations at what is coming, and it was exciting, and, and I was encouraged. But then one of the references to the kingdom happens in Luke 17. When I was asking, what is the kingdom of God? I found this passage, Luke 17, 20. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Okay, Jesus, you're saying, let it come soon. You're saying, let it come. You're saying to let it come. When will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God cannot be detected by any visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. And if I thought I was confused at the beginning of my study, where he's saying, let it come soon, I became even more confused by the concept of it's already among. So wait, Jesus, you want your disciples pray, let your kingdom come soon, but you're also telling people that the kingdom of God is already here. What? So, so like, come here, but you're already here. It, it didn't make sense. To me, this is like, like dishes, right? Wife says, do the dishes. And I say, I'm doing the dishes. And if I'm basic, but I'm not, I'm sitting. It's like, I'm going to do the dishes, which means I'm doing the dishes, which means the dishes are done. Boom. I solved the problem. It, it's the same thing, right? 
no, how, how can these two things be, be true? And I was really confronted with the fact that what Jesus says is true, so I can trust him. So therefore, it's just my understanding that is broken. So how can I better understand the concept that we need his kingdom to come soon and the kingdom is already here? How can both be true? So again, I went and I started studying that and I threw out my message Saturday morning and I went, God, you're clearly speaking something to me. What is it? So this is very fresh in my heart. It's something I've been thinking about for all week and I've been studying, but this concept is fresh in my heart. So it isn't my goal that you leave here knowing exactly what you need to know, but questioning maybe what you knew when you came in so that on your own, you can go back and study in your home groups. You can study with your Bible. You can study these concepts and come away with something new because the kingdom of God is something that has been studied forever and will be studied forever. So let's, let's look at what the kingdom of God is. I wanted to start in my study of the kingdom of God by defining an earthly kingdom because God, if, if God choose to describe his, his realm and what we need to know about him with our words, let's look at what those words mean first. So he said, it's a kingdom. What is a kingdom? Of course, we can think of medieval times, but kingdoms existed long before stone castles and men with crowns. But, but what are some of the things that every kingdom has? Every kingdom, first off, and this is deep, so hopefully you're taking notes because that's why we're at church so that we can grow. First thing, every kingdom has a king. It's profound, right? This is what you come here for. Every kingdom has a king. And if it doesn't have a king, it, it can't be a kingdom. It, it, it's in the word you need a king. So every kingdom has a king. That's the first thing every kingdom has. Second thing every kingdom has to have, a kingdom has to have subjects. A person who puts a crown on and sits in a chair that no one follows is just a weirdo. But if you have subjects who listen to what you tell them, you could be considered a king. A king has subjects. If you don't have subjects, you're not a king. You're just a person with a fancy hat. So like you're a kid at Burger King who found the paper crown, boom, that's your king. But if your king has subjects, they are a king. The third thing every kingdom has to have to be a kingdom here on earth is a physical location. They have to have a land, a, a boundary, a castle. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a castle, but I want to use the word castle to help us with this context. It needs a physical dwelling. It needs a home. It needs a land. It, without that, it's just an idea. It's just a concept. But if you have a place you are a kingdom. The, the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom had borders. Like kingdoms have borders. They have a castle. So it has a king, it has its subjects, and it has a castle. So what is the kingdom of heaven? If Jesus wants us to pray that his kingdom come, what are those three things? What are those three things that he's talking about in his kingdom? The first one, God is king. Our kingdom, the kingdom Jesus wants us to pray for, has to recognize at the very beginning, the first word in the kingdom is our king. And our king has been determined. It is God. The word king is used for God so many times in scripture. And, and there are different uses of the term king. There's the eternal king, the great king, the, the Jacob's king the king of kings, the king of God, the king eternal, the king immortal, the king invisible, the king of all the earth, the king of glory, the king of heaven, the king of Israel, the king of nations, the king of saints, the king of ages, the king of Jehoshaphat, the king over all the world, the king, the Lord of hosts. He is the king, the king of kings. 
He is the ultimate king. And it's defined that way throughout scripture. In the very beginning of Genesis, uh, God is described to us as the creator. That's how he chose to first illustrate himself to his people. God created the heavens and the earth. That's who he is. He made it all. Then he explains, because I made it all, I rule over it all. He is the king over his creation. And it's important that we begin by recognizing that. So what is unique to a king? If God is our king, how do we know that? First off, a king sits on a throne. That's actually an important piece of symbolism in a kingdom. Now, maybe not every culture has the the practice of the king sitting on a throne, but there's certainly some semblance of the king being lifted above people, and that's usually demonstrated with a throne because the throne is the symbol of the seat of power. Now, I've never watched the show Game of Thrones, but I gotta say they've got probably the coolest throne possible, like a chair made out of swords. If you wanna represent your power to people, sit on swords. <laughs> like, like the throne is, is the symbol of the king's power to the people, and the throne is lifted up above the seats of the others. So if there was an elaborate chair right here, uh, you know what? Here, let's do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow Aaron's chair. Aaron's very elaborate chair here. So if we've got an elaborate chair, it's raised above everyone, and I sit upon it, I am the king because I am above. And that illustration is important because the king is above all of his subjects. He has to be if he is the king. And showing that is important. God has a throne, as a matter of fact. In Isaiah 66, 1, it describes it. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? God has a throne. The very heavens are his throne. There is no one above him because he sits on the heavens. The earth is his footstool. If God is king, which he says he is, he uses our earth, our home, as where he rests his feet. You see, a a king would never allow his subjects to sit above him because he is the king. Second, we see that, we see that um, God has another throne. He had his throne in heaven, the thrones of the heavens. He also wanted a representation of his power here on earth, a representation of his throne here on earth. And we read of that in 2 Samuel 6, 2. He led them to Baal of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between two cherubim. It's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. You know that thing that Indiana Jones rescued from the Nazis? The Ark of the Covenant. I just wanted to give you a frame of reference. If you haven't seen that movie, you got some homework to do. Watch it. It's amazing. So the Ark of the Covenant is literally the throne of God because when when God freed his people of Egypt, he brought them out of slavery, he told them to build him a box wrap the box in gold, and on the lid put two giant cherubim, and then his presence went into that box, and it became his throne here on earth. We know that because every time God's throne is described in heaven, in scripture, you know what his throne is surrounded by? Cherubim. It's a a weird word, cherubim, and it's a weird creature, cherubim. They are beautiful angels, with six wings, and their wings, two of them cover their feet, and two of them cover their eyes, and two of them cover their midriff. And I don't know how an angel can fly if their wings are so busy covering them, but they do. Must be like Superman. The wings must just be like superfluous. But these cherubim 
always are pictured at the throne room of God on either side of the throne room. And then the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence dwells, has two cherubim sitting on the top facing each other. The Ark of the Covenant was God's throne here on earth. This is actually fairly important that we see this because God wanted his kingdom to be established here on earth through the Israelite people. He wanted his kingdom demonstrated through a group of people, so he made a throne to dwell among the people, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark needed to be treated with tremendous honor. As a matter of fact, no human hand was ever to touch it once the presence of God lived inside it. They had to carry it on poles. And there's a story where they put it on a cart and the cart fell over and a person reaches out to protect it and touch it and stop it from falling and that person instantly dies because nobody can approach the throne room of God. You can't, you can't. He's, he's above, he is the king. And the ark is put at the center of the Holy of Holies. This is a room inside the tabernacle. It's a room inside the temple, a central room that no person could enter except once a year on very specific premises. It's like the throne room. It's where God's presence lies. And that's inside of another room, which is inside of the larger temple. And that's where you could worship God. It was his house here on earth. He had his place and he had his throne. Our king sits on a throne recognizing who he is. Then we can actually see that Jesus sat on a throne. Hebrews 1, 3. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his commands. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down at the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. It's described numerous times in Bible that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, that God sits on his throne, and our King, he sits at his right hand, and he sits there over all of us, that Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. Every time it's described him looking down on us, it said he sits at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus sits on his throne. He is the King. The King has authority, and the King sits on his throne. It's important because it represents his power and authority over us. The other thing that kings always do, kings collect a tax from their people. This one's not very fun. Um, if you like, we all know the story of Robin Hood. Lots of cultural references today. Robin Hood, you know, the guy who stole from the rich and gave to the poor? He was stopping them from taking too many taxes in the name of the king. The king collects a tax. This is like a universal thing known throughout the world. No government, no power can stand unless it is receiving a tax from his people. You know, God, as a king, insists upon a tax. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe test, uh, into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do so, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. God says that he will be collecting his due, his tenth. The, the idea of a tax isn't, isn't the way we think of it as Americans, as a matter of fact. If a king was taking a tax, he wasn't saying, hey, all of you nice people who call me your king, you're so nice. I need 10% of your income or whatever the tax was. That's not how it was. The king would say, hey, listen, everything in this country is mine. I let you farm my land so therefore, you are going to pay me what I am due. Give me back the portion that is mine. I am the king. All of it is mine. It's all his anyway. The king is letting you live on his land. He's letting you 
own that property. He's allowing you through his divine grace as the king over you to let you. So pay him back his due. Why do we treat God differently? Remember, first he's the creator and then he's the king. Everything on this earth is his. It is his footstool. Everything we have was already his. So who are we to say to the king on his throne, yeah, but I'm a little tight this month, king. You know what happened in medieval times if you told the king, hey, king, I'm a little tight this month. Jail, stocks. You, you know that, that thing at medieval times when you put your hands and your head through the thing and then you smile and take a picture? It's an implement of torture. You realize that, right? People were locked in it for days. And you know what? Like, imagine you're locked in, a, in, a, in the stockades for days. What's gonna happen when you have to go to the bathroom? You're standing right there. Like, you don't pay the king, punishment comes because the king gets paid what the king is due. And when we look at God as anything other than our king, it's easy for us to say, the tithe is a suggestion from the Old Testament. It's not a command from a king. It's just a suggestion, and I can give my own way in my own time. You can, but in the New Testament, it is affirmed in Acts 4, 32. All the believers were united in one heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. You understand, it is the king's. So they shared everything they had. If we say, you know, the Old Testament, that's all about just 10%, that 10% tax, that tithe, that idea, that's just Old Testament thinking. I'm a New Testament believer. I believe everything after when Jesus came. And, and it doesn't talk about 10% there. No, it talks about 100. I'm not holding anyone to 100 because actually this Acts Church, they, they ran out of money pretty quick because they didn't, you know, com communism doesn't work very long. And, and they ran out of money and they had to go to others to supply for their needs. But, but they felt that what they had was not their own. Everything that we have is a gift from our king who sits on the thrones of heaven and he looks down and he says, will you trust me? You're my people. Will you trust me? And he promises to flow, throw open the floodgates. So a king is on a throne, a king receives a tax. Another thing that a king is, actually it's more what a king isn't. A king is not a president. This is, this is important for us to stop, pause, and recognize. As Americans, the very premise of our democracy and our, our democratic system is the rejection of the idea of a king. The founding fathers were incredibly careful to keep the president from having a king's absolute power. You understand that? That everything they did was to avoid having another King George to, to unrightfully rule over them. They hated the absolute power of a king and they rebelled against it. So they created an electoral system where the president would have definite terms and could be removed if necessary because the people were in charge. Our constitution begins with that idea. We, the people. Our entire system that we have been raised in, taught, and built to believe is that we should rebel against the idea that anyone could rule over us. And politically, this is important. But that's a political system, which I am not talking about now. I'm talking about our belief in the authority of our God. It is difficult to, for Americans to relate to an absolute monarch whose law and word is above reproach. Americans, we are fiercely independent and resistant to any diminishment of our own personal freedoms. It's difficult, but it is necessary. 
for us to bend our knees and our wills before the king. Listen, if any political figure walked in this place today and said, bow before me, I would reject that because you are a civil servant. I pay your salary. I mean, I'm not taxed very much, but you know, I'm kind of poor. But I pay your salary. You are my boss. I, you listen to me. I'm your constituent. I'll vote you out. We the people, we have the authority, not the ruling parties, right? That's how we're raised from day one. But then when we think of God as our ruling authority, we accidentally, because the culture that we're raised in, put him in the position of president, where if I don't agree with some of the things he says, I can change them. If I don't agree with the way things are going, I will just vote with my tithe. When individuals say to me like, well, fine, I don't like that, I'm leaving, and I'm taking my tithe with you, I'm like... This is not a democracy, it's a theocracy. And I don't answer to you, I answer to him. And if I answer to anyone else other than God, I have corrupted his system. I make mistakes. Candace makes mistakes. We are people and we will fail, but we are trying to follow the king, not the vote of people. It's, it's important. I am not the king. I don't sit on the throne. Candace is not the queen. She is not. She just answers to the king. And we follow him where he leads us. God is not our president. He is our king. We don't get to pick and choose which policies he enacts that we prefer. We get to put him on his throne. If this life is about doing our own thing rather than seeking the will of God the king, then our faith is a sham. It is a farce. It is a delusion. Either God is our king or he is not. He is king in heaven. He is king on earth and he will be king forever. Long live the king. We need to follow him. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Our king is a good king and he will provide if we seek him above all other things. It's not easy. And, and what happens when we don't want that king. You know, when we, we don't want a president, we can vote in a new president. It's, it's a simple system. But if we don't want our king, what happens? The Israelite people were blessed to have a theocracy when they were first established. Moses set up the system that an individual would hear from God and God would speak to the people and the people would follow whatever God says. That was the system they followed. It moved them into a land. It gave them a grand, beautiful place to live. They were prosperous. They were doing good. And then the people went to the man of God and they said, give us a king. We wanna be like the rest of the world. We want a man to rule over us. We wanna follow mankind. Give us a king. And Samuel, he goes to God and he says, God, they, they're rejecting me. They want a king. And God responds to him with these words in 1 Samuel 8. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will rule over them. God warns us about how this world will treat us if we decide to follow it instead of him. We believe that, that things will be so much better and easier if we can just do it our own way. If I could just do things the way I want to do them, it will be easier. God allowed the Israelite people to have a king. And it wasn't long 
before their first king failed and their second king failed and their third king failed and then the, then the kingdom was split in half and then one of the halves of that kingdom was brought into exile and then the other half was conquered. All the people were dragged away as slaves and Israel no longer existed. Because when we remove God as the king of our lives and we put anything else in that position, they will reign over us. And not with justice and love, but demanding it takes its own. This passage in Samuel goes on to explain that the king will take the best of your gardens. He will take your lands. He will take your cattle. He will take your sheep. He will tax you unfairly. He will build for himself great houses and he will leave you with nothing. When we put the world in a position in our lives where we say, I believe that because it's what I want, we set ourselves up for the very same failure that Israel faced and it sold them into slavery. But God saved them from it in the first place. And thank God he is good and gracious and will save them again. And he did through his son, who he sent to become a new king of Israel. In the line of David, he gave them a new king. And he can give us a new king today. This isn't about politics. This is about personal choice. Will you choose God or will you choose the world? So a king has a throne a king has a, a tax he collects. A king is not a president. And when we reject the right king, we are left in ruin. The second thing every kingdom has is subjects. You can't have a king without people following him, as I said earlier. And in this kingdom, in God's kingdom, he's made very clear who his subjects are. He created human beings to be his subjects. He created Adam and Eve, and then he created a place for them to live, and, and then they rejected him, and then he gave them a way to come back, and that's the story of scriptures, how we can become God's subjects. In medieval times, in, in the European culture, you could actually make an oath to a lord, a master, or a king. It was called an oath of fealty. And an oath of fealty is, is kind of a fancy thing where a person becomes a vassal of a feudal lord, where they they surrender themselves to that Lord. It's symbolized by kneeling, by joining hands and, and clasping them and accepting complete surrender to that person's power over your life. You would, you would drop on, and I, I think of like King Arthur and Excalibur and a guy's on a knee and the king's got a sword and, and there's like this beautiful moment where he pledges his undying allegiance to a king and a power. And when you hear the stories of people dying for their kingdoms and their kings and, and their powers, it's, it's that kind of oath of fealty where you look your king in the eye and you say, I will serve you, I will follow you, I will die for you. And an oath of fealty was an interesting thing. The person who kneeled and took the oath could never leave that on his own choice. It was only the king, the lord, or the power that could allow them out. So once you make that commitment to your king, you're in it until they reject you or death takes you. So if you went against your king, guess what the punishment was? It's death. Our king wants us to make an oath of fealty. An oath of fealty is actually different than forced subjugation. Because if you were born into a kingdom, you were the king's subject. You, you had to follow him. He was the ultimate authority. You couldn't argue that. That wasn't a choice you could make. But you could choose to take a full oath of fealty where you commit yourself to him. Let me tell you something about people who believe in Jesus and people who don't believe in Jesus. They have the same king. But those who follow Jesus took an oath of fealty to him. 
those who don't follow Jesus, he's still their king. Because there is only one true and future king. It is him. And he rules over them. But they reject him. But if we've taken that oath, We've made that commitment. You have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. You've repented of your sins. You've decided to live according to his plan for your life. You've made that choice. Guess what? No turning back. It's his way. That's what it means to be a subject of the king. You are his subject. You are beneath him and you have committed to him. Just because you come to church does not mean you've taken an oath of fealty. It doesn't mean that you have made that pledge. It doesn't mean you're following him with your life. I think this is why Jesus has the important pattern in scripture of baptism, right? Because baptism is a public ceremony where you declare to the world, I decided to follow Jesus. If you've ever prayed a prayer or made a decision to follow Jesus, that's a very private choice. That's an oath between you and God. But when you stand in front of individuals and you say, I've decided to follow Jesus and you're lowered down in the water and you're raised up, no one can ever tell you you didn't do that. They saw it. That's like taking the knee publicly before the king and declaring to the world, I will follow him with my life. And if you've made that decision, no turning back. You're now his subject. You're in his kingdom. Follow him then. Be his subject. Recognize the importance of the authority that he has in your life. If you haven't made that decision, you can today. Jesus talked about the importance of authority and recognizing it in our lives. We read about it in Matthew 8, 13. Um, there, was, there was a centurion, a Roman centurion, one of the ruling authorities in Jesus' day, who, who a centurion, he's a pretty high-ranking official, and he has lots of people under him, and he, he could actually command anyone to do anything, and they would have to listen to him unless they, were more, they had more authority to him. And he comes to Jesus, he says, my servant is sick, Jesus, will you heal them? And Jesus says, sure, let's go, I'll come heal your servant. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go, come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you, This, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and feast at the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown out into outer darkness. Remember how you're, you're born into the kingdom? The Israelites, they were born into the kingdom. But because they weren't following their king, they're thrown out of the kingdom. They'll be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believed it has happened and the servant will be healed, was healed that same hour. Jesus understood that this man understood authority. When you submit yourself under the authority of Jesus, something incredible happens. First off, I don't have to make choices. He made them for me. I don't have to wonder what's right for me to do. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Whatever that means, I just have to follow him. He tells me to do something, I do it. Once I do it, he'll tell me the next step. I just got to wait. 
That's a beautiful thing. But I have to recognize his authority in my life. So many times I, I think like, like I'm, I'm a co-follower. Like, like Jesus, we got this. We'll, you and me, we'll figure out where this train's going. We got this together. But only one person can drive a car. Gets real confusing when you got two people having their hands on the wheel. His authority is the authority that as his subject I need to submit to. And when I submit to his authority, incredible things can happen. I can go on mission trips and I can see people healed. I can pray over individuals in my life and see their life changed. I can lead others to new life. I can, I can build my life on the rock because I am submitting under the authority of the king of heaven. When we're under his authority, we have incredible power. The messenger of a king carries the authority of the king. Are you carrying his authority or are you acting in your own authority? In the name of Jason, do this thing. Oof. In the name of Jesus, who I follow, I am under his authority, not my own. This church is not run, you know, like, uh, that's a can of worms. Gotta open it now. <laughs> Sometimes people, they're, they're not super thrilled that our, our church is led by a woman but it isn't. She is under the authority of Jesus Christ and she follows him. And I will gladly submit to myself to any individual who submits themselves to Christ. It's just the way it is. We, there, there's a lot I could get into with that, but that's really what it comes down to. Who is leading this church? Jesus is. Candace submits to his authority. I submit to her authority. And I submit to Christ. I submit to him. I'm under his authority. And I will remain under his authority. Because anytime I step out on my own, I get knocked down a peg. Trust me. I am woefully inequipped to do anything. In preparation of this message, I had a pretty good thing going on my uh, Lord's Prayer. I just kind of want you to know I, I, it was pretty good. I, I think you'd have been impressed. And in my own power, I would have some capability to have performed that message with my own authority. But God had a different idea in mind, and he wanted me to declare his kingship to his people. Are you his subject? Have you made an oath of fealty? Every kingdom has a king. Every king has subjects, and every kingdom has a location, a castle. So what is God's castle? I, I think this would be a fun... Uh, experiment to do, to go back to the kids' classrooms and be like, what is God's kingdom? Where does God live? Where is his throne? What would the answer be? Heaven, right? He's gonna, God lives in heaven. Yes, that is very true, but it, it's just the beginning of it, because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They were separate, but from the very beginning, we see that God wanted to bring them together, that he wanted to bring heaven down to earth. We see this because God created a garden on earth, a perfect place where he could walk with Adam and Eve, where it was beautiful and perfect and without sin, and he walked there with Adam and Eve, and he walked in the garden and he talked with them, but then man decided he wanted to be equals with God, and he said, if I taste of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, I will become like God, how wonderful. And he took his own will and he corrupted God's heaven on earth, and it was separated again. 
And then God again wanted to bring heaven down to earth, so he instructed his people to build him an ark, a place, the holy of holies, heaven on earth, where God's very presence dwelled. And then people said, we want our own king. We want to do our own thing. We don't want to follow you. We want to be our own power. And if a man led us, then we would know how great we are. Right now, people just know you're great. But, but can't we both be great, God? Instead of saying God is great and we are not. They said, we can be great if we have a king. And they corrupted God's heaven on earth and they were sold back into slavery. And then Jesus so wanted to bring heaven on earth, he came down himself. And he said, pray that God's kingdom comes soon because more is coming. But when the Pharisees asked, when will it come? He said, it is here now. Heaven came down to earth and it walked among us and his name was Jesus. Heaven on earth, so that when he touched the sick, they were healed. When he talked to the sinners, they were forgiven. And then we looked at him and we said, you are clearly God and God is not man. Man is greater and we hung him on a cross. And we again destroyed the heaven on earth that God sent down. But he said, pray that the kingdom comes soon and here's why. Because... Where does God live? Where is his home? We are his castle. Corinthians tells us, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and is given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. My body is his temple, is his castle, is his home. That's where his throne is. It's in my heart. It's in my life. So how does heaven come soon? If I bring heaven with me to the world. Heaven lives inside of me. The very Savior did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he came down to us. He came to us. Heaven came down. It walked among us. And the kingdom came. We crucified it and made it stronger. And now it can live inside every single one of us. And we think that if we pray the prayer of salvation, we get the hell out of us and it stops. But instead, we can bring heaven that's in us to others and we can get the hell out of them. Literally remove the hell that is inside us from the cursed creation of earth and cast it out and say, it has no power because I have the authority of my king. He is enthroned in my heart and I carry with him. As long as I submit to his authority and I don't put it on myself and look at how great I am, that I am the one who's doing these things. That is not the case. It is him. And when I bring him with me, heaven travels Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Heaven walks into your workplace when you carry Christ with you. Your body is not your own. It belongs to him. The kingdom lives inside you if you're his subject, if you submit to his authority, if you allow him to live in you. God is king. I am not. I am his subject, and I will follow him unto death. Unto death. That's what an oath of fealty means, right? that as his subject, I submit to his kingdom unto death. You realize I, I told you that every time Jesus is described in the New Testament, except for revelations, that's kind of an exception, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father with one exception. In the book of Acts, an early disciple, Stephen, is proclaiming his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he is stoned to death. And then the Bible says that heaven's opened up and standing at the right hand of the Father, Jesus welcomed Stephen. Standing. You know what makes our king stand up? 
when his saints die for him. Now, I'm not telling everyone in this room the ultimate thing you could do is be martyred. I'm saying die for Christ. Die for Christ. How do we do that? Live every day until your death for Christ, and then you will have died for Christ. You don't have to be hit with stones to die for Christ. You have to submit to him every day until your death. And then when you die, who was it for? Die for him. Live for him. Too often we focus on heaven as an afterlife. You want heaven here on earth? Live for him. And then heaven's inside you. And as a matter of fact, you spread heaven all around. It's like you're just walking around spreading heaven like fairy dust. Heaven. Here's some heaven for you. Bring it with you because he's inside you. And if, if you're thinking, I can't bring heaven with me, that's not who I am. You're right. Thank you. That's who he is. You don't have to do it. You have to submit to him. And that's not always easy. It isn't. Sometimes it means doing things you don't want because a king sometimes insists things of his subjects that they don't like. But he is not the president and you don't get a vote. You get to do what he says. And when you do what he says, there is so much freedom in that because he is not a man, he is God. And what he tells you to do is not for his good, but for your good. And the greater good wins out when you submit yourself to him. He is our king. He is my king. And I will submit myself to him. As a part of this series, when you came in, you received communion. Because there is another thing that every kingdom has, I realized. Traditions. There, there is no earthly kingdom without traditions. And things that we do as a part of our culture. And Jesus passed down some traditions for us. If you didn't receive communion when you came in, just raise your hands. The ushers are making their way uh, around right now, and they'll, they'll be glad to serve you. Communion is one of the traditions given to us by Jesus. The other is baptism. Oh, wow, we got a lot. <laughs> the other is baptism. In two weeks at Freedom Valley, we're going to practice baptism, where individuals will have an opportunity to follow the pattern that Jesus made, where he said, believe and be baptized. And, and some people ask me, why do I have to be baptized? It's just water, right? I already made a decision to follow Jesus. Why do I have to be baptized? Here's the best reason I can give you. Honestly, it's it's the only reason I have. He said to. Jesus said to. The king said to. Are you submitting to the king? You might not want to get wet in front of complete strangers. I get that. <laughs> like, we all get bad hair days. I get it. But I will submit to God. And he said to. Another tradition our kingdom has. Communion. Why do we follow communion? He said to. Communion was a tradition established long before Jesus walked this earth. It was called Passover before that, representing the freedom from slavery that the Israelites were given by a miracle of God. And when he sat down to celebrate the Passover meal with his friends, he gave them a new tradition for the new kingdom that he created. And he called it communion. We call it communion. And it's a tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 11. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. 
In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed in my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Our king, sitting in a room like King Arthur with his knights, sat some bread in a cup, celebrating a tradition he had celebrated every year of his life, the Passover, saw that there was some bread and there was some juice. And, and I, I don't view this as a, a grand ritualistic moment where Jesus stood up and, and like the Last Supper painting and held his hands out. I, I view it more as a, a person, a, a man with his friends, looking at his best friends, knowing what was about to happen that he was gonna die for them. And he asked them genuinely with his heart, will you remember me? Will it be worth it? When I face that cross tomorrow, will you remember me? Please just remember me. And he took, he took the bread and he broke it like his body would be broken. And he asked, he's, our king asked, Remember me. As we take this bread, remember him. In the same way he took a cup. Symbolism in a cup is incredible. A king would have a cup bearer, someone he trusts. Jesus is the cup bearer to our Father God. He sits at the right hand, yet he holds out the cup to all of us. And we communally drink from this cup with our king. Every time we're connecting back to that very moment where Jesus said, this is my blood representing a new covenant, the forgiveness of your sins, a sacrifice paid so that you could be made whole, so that you had the possibility to even make an oath to my father so that you could become subjects of the kingdom. And he took that and he held it up and he said, every time you drink this, remember me. But you know, we, we very rarely have just like bread and wine at every meal. Like, don't you miss when you went to restaurants and there was just already bread on the table? I miss that. I don't know, it's just me. But they would have bread and wine with every single meal. So they would remember him at every meal. When you drink this, don't let it be this one moment and then you don't remember it again until our next communion. Let it remind you all week, at every meal, remember your king who died for you. Drink the cup. We are subjects in his kingdom. Whether you've made the oath or the pledge to follow him, he is your king. Today I have three responses. If you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus with your life, if you've never asked him to forgive you of your sins, if you've never made that decision to repent and follow and become a subject of the kingdom and you want to today, you can do that for the first time or you can recommit that decision today. Maybe you've made that decision before, but 
you haven't been submitting to your king. And today you need to commit to submit to his way above your own way. You need to follow what he says rather than what your earthly feelings want. You can make that decision today. Or then third, maybe you'd say, I, I feel like I'm following him and I'm his subject and I'm, I'm living for him, but I am not bringing heaven with me as I go. I don't want to reflect myself to the world. I want people to see Jesus' love through me when they look at me. I want them to see heaven come down as we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every response, and I ask you to run close to those who are needing your love, that you would help us to put you first. We would recognize you as King and Lord of our lives, that we would submit to your ultimate authority. And I ask for each and every one of us trying to represent you better to this world we live in. God, would you reign? Would you rule? Would you let your kingdom come? Let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I-N-N. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. So one of the beautiful things about God and his grace is how he approaches our submission to him. Um, like, look at the Israelites, for example. When God named them Israel, he knew very much what that name meant. Israel means wrestling with God. Entering into a relationship with God, he knows that our submission is not something that is going to come easily to us because we are flawed individuals and we sin even when we don't want to. Even when we make a choice not to sin, we will still sin. And God knows this and approaches it. Those that wrestle with God. When we enter into a relationship with Him, that's what it is. A wrestling match for the rest of our lives that God brings Himself down to take on the human condition and to confront the demons inside of us. He wrestles with our issues. And if we don't leave the fight, if we stay in it, we will screw up. But if we continue on... God will prevail over our demons, over the human condition, over our sin. God will reign victorious. It might be the day that we die, but God will be victorious on that day when we enter heaven in our perfect bodies. He will overcome sin. And that's the thing I want to leave you guys off here today, some encouragement because submitting to God is very, very hard to look at because you know that you do it and you want to, but you're going to mess up. But God will prevail eventually because he sent his son to die for you and for your issues. And he will, he'll stomp it into the dust. God, thank you so much for being a good king and for knowing that those 
who choose to follow you really want to, God, and you know that we will fail and your grace prevails above all things, God. Allow us to take whatever you have for us from this message and bring it into the rest of our week, God. Give us the chance to apply it to our lives and allow it to change us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have a great week, everyone.